you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. No matter what job you do, what social groups you run in, what uh, kind of uh, events you take part of, you live in a world full of jargon, of, uh, of a particular language specific to that area. If you're uh, part of Greek life in college, you learn about the, the jargon of rushing and pledging and, and all these things. If you're a Freemason, you learn a whole lot of their jargon. If you uh, work in the Kentucky High School Athletic Association, you learn all sorts of jargon, and we as Christians are no different, are we? We have all these uh, Christianese words that would, be, that would be great for Scrabble, right? Imagine getting some of our words on a triple word score. Justification, righteousness. Could you define justification if you had to? And yet you, you kind of know what it is, right? It's, it's the state of being in right standing before God. We talk about sanctification or being made holy, and, and we, we, we pray it, and yet we sometimes have to stop and think, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be set free from sin? Uh, we, we often pray, uh, pour out your grace, but what is grace? If it's not uh, God giving us that which we don't deserve, and, and the flip side of grace is mercy, which I've loved the definition is God not giving us what we do deserve. What is faith if, if it's uh, more than belief, if it's uh, a hope in something unseen? We have uh, Christianese that we know and we believe, and yet even, even at times it's hard to define. And wisdom is one of those words. Anybody want to take a stab at giving us a working definition of wisdom? Awfully quiet, right? We, we, we think we see wisdom and we recognize wisdom, but if we had to actually talk about what it is, we, we feel a little more tentative. I kind of see y'all pull just back just a little bit. He's, Please don't call on me, Chad. I'm not going to call on anybody. I have a working definition of wisdom that I am comfortable if it gets broken apart, but I, I'm going to claim that wisdom is the intersection of knowledge and experience and revelation and then the application of all that together. That... That wisdom is not just being smart. It's not just being uh, knowledge in the worldly ways. It's not even uh, being uh, connected to God's revelation in a special way. It's, it's all those brought together and then lived out. I can't find where wisdom is ever just uh, intellectual pursuit. It's an embodied uh, reality in our Christian words. But we say, let's do the wise thing. Andy Stanley wrote a book years ago uh, called The Greatest Question Ever. It came out about the time everybody was wearing a WWJD bracelet. And we thought, ah, he's tapped into the marketing machine. Uh, this is the greatest question ever. What would Jesus do? And, and he kind of threw us for loop because pretty soon you jump in and he says, the greatest question is not what would Jesus do, but is what is the wise thing to do? I can't remember anything else about the book. We, we did like a 10-week youth group series on it. But this, this question has stuck with me for years. What is the wise thing to do? What is uh, the way of living that brings together my knowledge, my experience of uh, life and uh, others, the, 
the revelation that God has given me, and then how do I then live it out? The, the wisdom literature tries to direct us towards that. It, it stands in contrast to other parts of literature that are giving us information, or that, uh, so the Torah is primarily information or narrative. Uh, the prophets primarily give us uh, kind of imperatives and revelation, but the wisdom literature stands in this kind of interesting gap between all of it. It says, you should know this in theory, and you should feel this because of the presence of God. And so this is how you should go and live. Last week we started in the Song of Solomon and said that at its core it's this love poetry that is allegorically understood to represent the love of God in Israel and then has been appropriated by the church to talk about us in Christ, this love between God and his people. We have uh, the book of Job, which helps us to begin to ask questions about what is wise and what is wisdom in the face of things not being right. We have the book of Ecclesiastes saying, what does it mean to live a life of wisdom when things make absolutely no sense? We have the book of Proverbs that seems to be trying to tell us how to live a life of wisdom uh, where if we did it, everything would make sense. Our passage today invites us into a very clear picture of how the author of Proverbs understands wisdom. That at the intersection of their knowledge, their experience, and their revelation from God, there is a, an imperative to care for those on the margins. Specifically in this place, to care for the poor. That you can't be wise if you trample on poor folks. You can't be wise if you go out to where they are suffering and laugh at them. You can't be wise if you ignore it and pretend like it's not happening. Wisdom is understanding God's uh, law for how we relate to those who are on the margins. God's law uh, on how we deal with those who are disadvantaged. God's revelation through his spirit and through the prophets who said, this is a problem, the way y'all are treating the poor folks. And the author of Proverbs says, so go, care for those who are poor, stop oppressing them, make sure that they are welcomed into the life of the people of Israel. Don't push people farther to the margins. Because this is, this is a theme that runs all throughout Scripture. In the Torah, we see it over and over again. Here are ways we're going to make sure that poor folks are taken care of. We're going to leave food in the fields instead of being greedy. We're going to make sure the scales of, of the marketplace are weighted correctly. We're going to have years of jubilee every so often to kind of release debts that you have sold, to get back your cloak, to get back your land. If it was all about head knowledge, the Torah would have been enough for Israel. I know these laws, and I know this is what God says to do, so we live in a utopia where everything is great and people are... Uh, holding things in common and caring for one another. But we know from Israel's story that is not what they do. And so about the same time the monarchy begins falling apart, we begin to get these prophets who are uh, more prevalent in our story. These prophets who say, you have two problems. Much like the Song of Solomon, you have failed to love God. You have uh, you have kind of pushed allegiance to him off to the side and you have offered yourself to the highest bidder. Will this God help my crops grow? Will this God help my relationships? Will this God allow me to make new treaties? You have failed to worship Yahweh faithfully. You have failed to love him wholly. 
And because of that, you have failed to love other people. The prophets have basically two critiques, idolatry and the mistreatment of humanity. At every turn, the prophets say, you have rigged the scales in the marketplace. You, you took their jacket and kept it. You're trampling on those who have already been trampled upon. You're pushing to the margins those who are marginalized. You are uh, separating yourselves from those who most need you. Repent. Turn around. Have sorrow because of this sin. Repent and change and be different. It is not too late. And yet, at story after story, they don't heed the words of the prophets. And so God says, this can't be my sign for the world. You people who, who reject me and then trample on each other. How, th- this cannot be. And so God allows them to have the effects of their sin and to go into exile, first in Assyria and then into Babylon, to sit and wait and uh, to be reformed. That maybe, just maybe, when they go back to the land, they'll be faithful in their allegiance to Yahweh and they will care for the oppressed. And we have 400 years of intertestamental time where the prophets seem to go a little quiet. We get narratives of what's happening and then we flip to the New Testament and we find that the group seemingly is worshiping Yahweh. They're desiring his presence in the temple. We have the rise of these groups that uh, seek to bring about God's presence in Israel. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Essenes and the Zealots all in, in their own way want to ensure that, that God's blessings are once more on Israel. The worship seems to be right, and yet the heart doesn't seem to be oriented in this, this divine love as pictured in the Song of Solomon. It's about rote action. It's about uh, checking the boxes for worship and sacrifice. It's about being good enough. And they still trample upon each other. If you read the kind of behind the story of so many of Jesus' teachings and his miracles, it's, it's he's going to these people who the good Jews have trampled upon, who have pushed farther to the margins, who've made them get farther from the pool where the waters are stirred. They've, they've pushed them out away, out even beyond the gate. And so Jesus comes in this, uh, this embodied love as as, as the tradition holds, as wisdom enfleshed. That he is the, uh, the, the sum total of, of knowledge and revelation of God and of experience, and that he's going to come model for us what wisdom looks like. And so at, at turn after turn, Jesus uh, prefers those on the margins. He lifts them up and names that they are actually at a, a higher place at the table, that they are... Uh, to be honored and revered and and cared for. James doesn't take take it easy in today's text on uh, the church not caring for those on the margins. It's it's one of those readings where you want to say, thus ends the reading of scripture, because it's hard to say, this is the word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God, when he just said, if you're not taking care of poor people, your faith is dead. Lots of the early church wanted to kind of shove James out of Scripture. They wanted Paul's uh, grace and kindness and theoretical 
uh, knowledge of God's uh, desires for us to be enough. But James doesn't love that. It's this, this flip side of the same coin that absolutely we need uh, salvation by faith alone, but you don't actually have faith if you stand in the line of those who marginalize other folks. And then the gospel lesson today is this really, really, really uncomfortable passage that, that uh, scholars have never been able to sit down and, and name, like, what exactly is going on here? Jesus is with a crowd, and this Syrio-Phoenician woman comes and brings her child, or, or asks for healing for her child. This Syrio-Phoenician woman is like a Gentile of Gentiles, uh, and, and in many ways, a descendant of those who had actually exiled the Jews from the Promised Land. And Jesus says, get away. I'm here for the children. And, and, and for him, that means the people of Israel. And you've got to give the children their food. And she says, but even the dogs get food under the table. And he says, you are right. Your faith has made her well. Go, your daughter is healed. And, and then he unpacks this, this healing of uh, another man who uh, can't really speak and can't really hear. And he, he brings healing and, and models the messiness of wisdom of, of the uncomfortable nature of, uh, of embodying love. These people that Israel had kind of pushed farther and farther and farther away. Jesus seems, even when it's uh, awkward, to offer life and wholeness and healing. Our uh, United Methodist Social Creed talks about how God despises the growing disparity between rich and poor, and so should we. Church history has said that the church is the church uh, at its best when it, uh, when, it, when it lays down claims to our own possessions, when we, when we would do enough that we would even risk our future safety to care for someone's present needs. And, and it's the story of the church at many times, but it's also the story of, of people who have found that really hard to do, to say, I'm going to put my own self at risk to care for this person. I'm going to maybe face some insecurity so that this person who is already in insecurity can be cared for. The wisdom tradition, James, Jesus, don't let us off the hook. Sola fide, only faith is the, is the cry of the church, and yet for, for them, faith is embodied. Faith is living a wise life that brings together the knowledge of what we should do with us actually doing it because we have experienced God's revelation. So Andy Stanley asked us, what is the wise thing to do? And at least in this set of lectionary readings, uh, the wise thing to do is to look beyond ourselves, look towards the margins, and, and look to ways that we can be part of lifting up the lowly and humbling the mighty. It's not an easy word, but I believe it is the word from God today. We'll be looking for ways to embody love, to be people of wisdom, to plug in uh, through the many things that we have right around us. Our serve team has multitudes of ways that we can actually engage those who are more marginalized than we are, who we can uh, embody wise love to. We're going to be sharing some of their stories throughout the fall. We're going to be uh, looking for ways to plug every person into living out a wise life, to embodying, uh, embodying love, to, 
to live as Christ has called us to do and as the apostles modeled for us. Okay? Marilyn nodded yes, okay? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Holy and loving God, you who are white as snow, free from sin, perfect in character, have offered us your grace unmerited to be made holy ourselves, to be set free from sin. You've offered us uh, knowledge and revelation and experience to to form together in wisdom, to, to embody your love for the world today. Would you open our eyes to the ways in which we have been unwise and to the ways in which we might be uh, wise people? Lord, as we come to the table, would you receive our confession? Would you offer us pardon? And would you meet us in the bread and cup? We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, the embodiment of wisdom and by the power of the Holy Spirit who offers us wisdom. Amen.